So it's really wonderful. We've come to the end of this time together and there's a tremendous sense of we made it, we did it. Um, Hatsy and I were talking just before we came in to sit just now and talking about various ways in which we're so grateful for this practice and also how hard it is, really how hard it is, and how sometimes... um, we, how exciting it is to do something that's really hard with people who share with you an understanding that it's worth it. We were talking about um, other difficult disciplines and I said, and Hatsi had said, you know, if someone from the outside looked in on us, we look odd, you know, really, <laughs> sitting here and someone suddenly dropped in from some other place or walking around, we definitely look odd. But... <clears throat> And sometimes you may have had those same thoughts as well about look around and think, this is really odd. Um, and I was, a year ago, uh, I went to uh, Alaska with, and I was on a boat with 30 other people and in the day uh, we'd anchor somewhere and we'd go out in kayaks and uh, look around. And even that it was um, springtime in Alaska, it was still cold and there were pieces of iceberg and the water floating and uh, the guides were very strong about be careful, don't tip over, it's very dangerous to tip over here, it's really cold and we were all bundled up and one day we were actually out and it was raining and misting and blowing and here are these 30 folks all in foul weather gear paddling along and it's dark and raining and you think to yourself, what an odd thing to be doing, but it was so exciting because he got to see marvelous things, got to see sea otters floating on their back and sea lions sitting up on big icebergs and he got to see icebergs calve and fall off and make this huge boom. So it was not any question for us that we were willing to do a difficult thing because we got to see something marvelous. And you did too, that we got to do a difficult thing in order to see something quite marvelous that not everybody, actually not very many people, get to see. We get to see firsthand really the possibilities of the human heart, of our own heart. We get to see that in spite of the fact that life is inevitably challenging, for all of us, in every way, as we go along through life, we can nevertheless appreciate it, we can celebrate it, we can love it. We do not have to be in an adversarial relationship with our lives. We can be grateful. Really, when uh, somebody said this morning, maybe it was Jack talking about practice of dana and talking about really that gratitude is really a key piece of this practice. I think it's the whole of practice that we are really hoping, all of us in our lives, to be able to say thank you. Do you remember if you were here in the first retreat, Marie read such a wonderful poem um, by the poet Merwin about thank you, thank you, in every circumstance, in the most challenging of circumstances, And really, I think that the real challenge for us in our lives is how will we 
all the time be able to say thank you, even when it's very, very difficult to be able to say at least no thank you, to be able to be able to do the situations in our lives awake to the truth of them, responsive to what needs to be done, not angry at it. To not be in a contentious relationship with life itself, which really requires a tremendous understanding of the karma of things. And a possibility of that kind of liberated heart that's able to respond with kindness and compassion. So that's what we were doing here. And we got all of us to see that one way or another. Someone sent me a um, um, piece on the internet, and presumably by some Indian elder. Sometimes I wonder about some of these things that I get in the, in the internet about whether somebody actually uh, wrote it themselves and ascribed it to somebody with an interesting name, because it doesn't sound like anybody that I recognize, but some of the pieces of it are, it's called The Invitation. And it begins by saying, it doesn't interest me what you do for a living. I want to know what you ache for, what you dare to dream of meeting. It doesn't interest me how old you are. I want to know if you will risk looking like a fool for love, for your dreams, for the adventure of being alive. I want to know if you have touched the center of your sorrow, if you have been opened by life's betrayals, or if you've become shriveled and closed from fear of further pain. I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine or your own, without moving to hide it, or fade it, or fix it. I want to know if you can be with joy, mine or your own, if you can dance with wildness and let ecstasy fill you to the tips of your fingers and toes without cautioning us to be careful, be realistic, or to remember the limitations of being a human. I want to know if you can get up after the night of grief and despair, weary and bruised to the bone, and do what needs to be done for the children. It doesn't interest me where or what or with whom you have studied. I want to know what sustains you from the inside when all else falls away. I want to know if you can be alone with yourself and if you truly like the company you keep in the empty moments. You all did a wonderful job of keeping yourself company for these many weeks that you were here. As these uh, days went along, kept appreciating what a wonderful job you were doing. And sometimes we would, uh, uh, in the evenings, the teachers get together, as you know, and talk about how people are doing and how we can be helpful what's going on here. And often we would say to each other, this is really working. This really works. Thank you very much for doing this. You were a cause of great happiness for me, for all of us. I thought to myself, what a marvelous karma. 
we all have to be here. For me, it was not only a great privilege to be here, but a tremendous and extended contact high. Also a tremendous learning experience. I learned a lot from you. Tremendous confirmation of my faith that this really works. I looked out throughout these, all these weeks and I'd look out, I'd have different uh, idea of what I was looking at. So every once in a while I look out and as I got to know you a little bit and certain of you that I got to work with and really know you, I could look out and I could imagine those cartoon balloons, you know, those balloons over somebody's head with little balloons coming down to their head where you know what they're thinking or what's going on as their process. And they're just, there's, a, there's a certain limited menu of what people think about. And uh, if you think about the menu, for instance, of the hindrance mind states, you can imagine mind filled with lust and whatever pictures you have of lust. And mind filled with anger, you see, shooting and war. Mind filled with confusion and clouds, cloudy bubble. And uh, mind full of restlessness. That's one I like because I imagine a volcano all spouting out all over the place. Mind filled with restlessness. And mind filled with doubt. I don't know quite how to do that, so I always imagine it's mind full of question marks. And every once in a while you have mind filled with happiness or joy, or maybe you make one of those happy faces. And the thing is, if, if I look out over these days and weeks, the bubbles move around. You know, they, nobody keeps the same bubble for very long. It's like musical bubbles moving from one person's head to another person. Because that's how it is. You know, it changes. One day is this, and another day is that. But it's actually very pleasant to look out and know that that's happening. Sometimes I have another vision. I look out, and it looks to me like a room full of uh, cooking pots, big kind of cauldrons, you know, that like uh, those cauldrons that you see witches sort of stirring the brew, you know, big cauldrons, little fires bumble, bubbling under everybody. And I imagine that they all have lids on them. But if I were to pick up the lid and look in, everybody would be bubbling away. So I look and I think, everybody is cooking, you know. It's as if we're all cooking Buddha soup. And we put everything in there and see how it's going to come out. And eventually it will come out wonderful, but you have to cook for a while. You know? <laughs> so I think about that. I also think, as you all did, just what I said before, sometimes you look out and you think, how odd. People outside doing all kinds of things, and here we're doing this. And I realized today um, that... Uh, I was imagining that uh, as uh, today and yesterday as you got to meet people, I've had the experience of, uh, at the end of a retreat, discovering that there's a person in there, you know, that, that very body that walked around. Then I thought to myself as I was thinking about it today, you get to see that there's someone in there. But then I think, no, 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 actually you probably discovered there's no one in there. But actually there's a personality and it suddenly wakes up and people look different to you. Mostly when I looked out and saw all of us out there and here, I thought again about what extraordinary karma that we're all here. That we all of us popped onto this 
world on a different day in a different place. And if I could imagine uh, everybody popping on on their day in their place, here I pop into this world in New York in July in 1936, and Jack pops into the world in 1945, um, and James pops on somewhere else, and here comes Guy, and here come all of us, and our lines move around. If we if we were keeping a neon tracking of where we were going, we would look and see us all crossing paths many times, probably many of us crossed many times before now, and now all of a sudden we're all here, and all of our paths have crossed here all of a sudden for this brief moment in time. And I think to myself, I am so grateful for the fact of this practice in my life and for the fact of my teachers and my colleagues and my friends and all of you in my life. And I think, what amazing karma that this happened. Here's a karma story that I like to tell because it happened in a city called Grand Rapids. And that's part of the story. I was in Grand Rapids a year or so ago teaching. And uh, at the end of a weekend of teaching, someone said, uh, you really ought to meet Arnold Borstein. He's that man over there in the back of the room. He's uh, 86 years old. and. Uh, uh, he has the same last name as you do, and it's such an unusual last name. Maybe he's a relative of yours. So I sought him out, and I had a discussion with him. And it turned out, actually, that he, his, he probably is not kin at all, because my, uh, the Borstein is my husband's family name, and they came from the Ukraine, and Arnold Borstein. turned out that his ancestry is uh, northern Germany. So I said to him, were you born there? He said, no. I said, um, my father was born there. I was born here in Grand Rapids. So I said, really? Because uh, he's 86 years old. And uh, I said, um, so he was born in 1910 in Grand Rapids. I said, were there Jews in Grand Rapids in 1910? He said, oh, sure, there are Jews. There are lots of Jews in Grand Rapids in 1910. And that was interesting to me because my, all of my grandparents who had come around that time to uh, the United States from Europe never left New York. The most intrepid, adventuresome people moved to New Jersey. But I never knew anybody who really moved at all away from just around practically where they arrived, away from Ellis Island, but not far. So I said to Arnold Borstein, how did your, uh, he said, I was born right here in Grand Rapids. I said, how did your parents get to Grand Rapids? He said, well, actually, my father was born in Germany, came to New York. He went into business with his cousin in New York. The business failed. And then uh, the cousin said, let's open another business. Let's open a business this time in Chicago. Chicago will be better. So the cousin left for Chicago, and he said, and my father left two weeks later to join him in Chicago. To get to Chicago, he had to change trains in Detroit. In Detroit, he got on the wrong train. 
And accidentally, he got on the train for Grand Rapids. But he didn't discover that until it was too late. He was on the train for Grand Rapids, so he went to Grand Rapids. He arrived in Grand Rapids on a Friday afternoon, just uh, here we are on Friday evening. He arrived on Friday afternoon. It was late in the afternoon, and what was he to do? And he's in a strange city, and he walked down the main street of Grand Rapids, and he saw a sign that said something that gave him a clue, something like Sam Cohen and Sons, haberdashers. And uh, recognizing that kind of a name, he went in and said, uh, I'm new in the city, do you know anyone who will take a single Jewish man home for the Sabbath? So Sam Cohen took him home for the Sabbath. And just the previous week, Sam Cohen's young niece from Europe unmarried, had arrived <laughs> and was staying with him in his household. So Arnold Borstein's father married Sam Cohen's niece and Arnold Borstein was born in Grand Rapids in 1910. And he married in Grand Rapids and had all his children in Grand Rapids. And you think, what would have happened if Arnold Borstein had not gotten on the wrong train in Detroit? He would have gone to Chicago and a whole other life would have happened. I don't know if it would have been a happier life or an unhappier life, but definitely a whole other life, and one that didn't include Arnold Borstein, because that depended on Sam Cohen's niece for him to be, for him to be Arnold Borstein. So when you think about it, when I t the reason that uh, I like that story particularly is when I told it to James, he said, it's good that that happened in Grand Rapids, he said, because that's what life is, one long Grand Rapids. And it's got eddies and flows all the time. You never know when you're going over the falls. You never know when the next drop is going to be. It's good that it happened in Grand Rapids. And there's a way in which when we each of us think of our lives, every single thing had to happen in that apparently fortuitous way for us to be right here now, enjoying the excellent karmic fruit of being able to do this practice. When I think to myself, uh, what my, what brought me here, I have to think, well, uh, my friends practice, most of my friends had more clear intention when they began practice. They had some sense of what spirituality meant or they had some sense of what they needed in their life. For most of my friends it was actually some personal thought that was the proximal cause of their practicing. Uh, in fact my husband's uh, interest in spiritual journey and spiritual quest is the most immediate proximal cause. When I think back uh, I was kind of living my life. And he, the proximal cause, or the distal cause at that point, one distal cause of his spiritual search was having seen as a young boy um, Lost Horizons and uh, being very interested in the mystery of spiritual quest and feeling in himself some need to explore. And another cause of my being here was the fact that it was the 1970s and there were all kinds of um, new kinds of um, spiritual practices that people were talking about and practicing. 
And a more distal cause would be the fact that uh, my grandparents independently came from Europe at the same time that Arnold Borstein's parents did and met each other and gave birth to my parents who met each other, who liked each other enough to get married and for me to get born so that I could marry that husband who had that interest. So when you think about the kinds of every single thing in the world forever is responsible for us being here. When you think about that, that's amazing. I love that. It makes me so excited to think if one thing had been off, then I think, <sighs> what I didn't know when I began my practice was really what I would learn. What I knew immediately was that I was so happy to hear the possibility of a peaceful heart, the possibility of not struggling, possibility of not suffering. I had really a good life. I have very fortunate karma. But I had lots of fears, lots of anxieties. I had principally a lot of anxieties about life itself and whether or not I had the heart or anybody had the heart to do a life. And the very best news for me was to come on my first retreat, quite naive actually about what was happening, and listen to my teachers talk about, really teach the Four Noble Truths, that life is dukkha, unsatisfactory, not a place of permanent refuge, just because of the way it is, because of its changeability. That the only refuge really was a peaceful and benevolent heart, one's own, and that that was a possibility. I loved that so much. Long before I had any sense that I would be able to pay attention in any meaningful way, or calm down enough to pay attention in a meaningful way, I was thrilled to hear that. So I love to be on retreat, and I love to listen to Dharma. And I like the quiet a lot, and I like the food a lot. I really did not appreciate how transformative practice really is, and how much it would transform me, and how much I would learn, and how much I would change. what emotional healing would happen to me. I was actually somewhat surprised by the time I began to practice. I was 40 and uh, I'd been a psychotherapist for 10 years. I'd uh, done some quite intensive psychotherapy um, before I was a therapist, after I was a therapist. I thought that I had uh, really work through, in whatever way one imagines one works through, the most difficult things in my life. What I didn't know and what I very much appreciate now, and what all of you learned in these weeks that you were here, is that you never finish. It comes back again and again. Less 
difficult. It was tremendously moving to me to work with all the people that I worked with. People who came in and said, remember that story that you told yesterday? I had a similar story like that in which I was very, very hurt and was able to feel compassion for the person who hurt me a lot. What I didn't realize until you told that story and I reflected on my story is that there were other parts of that story that I hadn't looked at that weren't resolved yet. It's as if we look in the heart with a flashlight and we say, well, I know what's there, but we don't see that maybe we didn't look underneath it or behind it or in this corner of it. There's always a bit more. That the healing of the heart is endless. Probably, probably because in addition to whatever healing work we do on what's already happening in our lives, we're continually living our life. So there's always the healing from the disappointments and the sadnesses and the fears. And it's actually quite exciting to me to think that there's no end to it. I think that's wonderful. Then we'll be alive and interested and bright and excited all of our lives till the very end. Imagine if we finished. What would we do then? I mean, it's wonderful to be able to think, I could be awake. I could be waking up more and more. I have a friend who says that, um, tells a story that his, uh, one of his daughters, when, he was, uh, when she was just a, a toddler, maybe two or three, came into uh, uh, her parents' bedroom early one morning and uh, just kind of rubbing her eyes and waking up and saying, you know how when you get up from in the morning and uh, you were asleep and then you got up? And he said, yes. And she said, well, once you're up, can you get more up than up? <laughs> so I think that's what we're trying to do here. We, we're up, but we're trying to get more up than up. You know, if you say to most people, are you awake? They say, yeah, sure, what do you mean am I awake? I'm awake, you know. But really awake, really awake. And not hiding. Can we not hide from ourselves? Can we not hide from other people? I was somewhat with dismay and surprise that I discovered as I began to practice regularly that the very same stuff that had been there that I thought was finished was back again, back again. But then less and less, and less and less troublesome. You get to have an affectionate relationship I think Jack was talking about the other night, you get to be a connoisseur of your neuroses. I think that's Ramdas's line, you get to be a connoisseur of your neuroses. I think what happens is we get to be compassionate about our peculiarities, our idiosyncrasies. You know, when uh, I teach about the hindrances, I'm quite... I, I, I think I teach the most about restless, fretting mind because I know the most about it. I used to portray myself as a black belt fretter. Uh, now I sometimes talk about myself as a recovering fretter. Um, because what happens, actually, what I've discovered, is you have a certain patterns of the mind. I've actually begun to appreciate that Given a certain set of circumstances, my mind 
will immediately construct, however roundabout it is, some catastrophic event out of a more or less neutral situation. You have to actually be skilled to do that. You know, that you can take a practically neutral situation and have a flash of a possible catastrophic outcome. And what the difference between now and before is I actually appreciate that. I think that is amazingly inventive. Look what you just did. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. That's the difference. I say to myself, that's just the way this particular mind works with stuff. It takes neutral stuff. It makes a fright out of it. I don't know if it's good. I, I would have at some point in my life given anything to have a mindectomy, to have that particular, <laughs> that particular quirk removed because it's a bear. The people who have it know that it is no fun to be a black belt fretter. It ruins so much possible good time. But here's the truth, in my experience. You cannot change that filter, but you can discover it's a filter, and then you don't take it seriously. It's like if I put on green glasses and couldn't take them off, I would have to tell myself all the time, the world is not actually green. You just see it that way. So compensate for it, which is what I do. It's amazing. So I say to myself, I have this kind of a mind. It makes these kinds of odd conclusions to situations and I have brown eyes and I'm short. Those are just things that came with the package but I actually feel quite affectionate about it and actually sometimes I'm really, um, it's a a source of some appreciation for me. It's nice to have something that you can count on that it always works the same way. So over the years, as you are here, you get to know more and more and more about yourself and there's less and less hidden and there's less and less to be embarrassed about. Kinds of things that you usually don't tell people about yourself, you tell about yourself because you realize it's just what it is. It's not a big deal. And the whole other part, we get to see so clearly more and more about ourselves. We get to see more and more clearly what's true. Not about ourselves, not our personality, but deeply what's true about how things are, that things pass, that clinging and struggling is suffering. Sometimes the phrase that leads to suffering, it is suffering. That really what our experience is, is one experience after another that no one owns it. It's just experience arising. Lawfully conditioned experience. And then I actually think that's one of the ways that we cannot take it so personally. That I don't have to be embarrassed about being the kind of person who thinks odd, catastrophic thoughts. It's just what came with the package. Don't have to feel bad about it. Don't have to have a project to fix it up. I think we get to be more and more us, and really the best kind of us. Get to be the kindest and most compassionate version of us. This is really a transformative practice when we see how much grief and how much suffering we cause extra by what we are not able to admit, not able to see clearly,
what traps us in confusion and tension. When we see clearly, we're quite able to change. Change happens, becomes different, becomes easier. I thought I would tell you something about what I learned even more on this retreat. You know, we all do this retreat together. So everybody was on retreat together. We just had different forms of retreat. I learned that everything that I learned before is true, because you all did it again for me. That everybody discovered the truth of their lives in increasing and different ways. I also learned that long matters, that it matters that we were here for this long time. That a lot of the time uh, I teach that uh, practice in daily life is very important. I believe that practice in daily life is very important. As a matter of fact, what I believe is that daily life is practice. And uh, all of daily life, not just the Zafu time or the separate time or the quiet time or the silence time, but all of life is one long practice. And what we come to do here, what we have the incredible luck to do here from time to time, is come and do a very simplified version of our whole life, sort of level the playing field so that we can get a really good view of things and um, polish up the awareness and really deepen the heart's composure so that we can go out and do the whole life as our practice. So really I believe that all of life is practice and really I believe that daily formal practice matters and really, really I believe it was important for all of us to have this long time together. If you think about the time that you had, you'll remember that he sat for a while, things calmed down, and then all of a sudden, boom, here was something to deal with. And it was there for a while, and it worked out, and then that was gone. And just, that was gone, you say, phew, now that was gone. Whatever it was, the headache, or the backache, or the loneliness, or the frightening recollection, or the longing, or so good, now I'm finally relaxed, comfortable, quiet, this is great. And then, boom, here's the next thing. And we remember, I, I talked about it the last time, that people came in and said, you know, just when it got good, all of a sudden. And I really wanted to remind you then, and I will again now, that that's really what's meant to happen. It didn't get good. It got spacious enough for whatever needed to be healed to present itself. It is so wonderful to think about the fact that we don't have to do anything at all except prepare the space and be willing to occupy it. And the heart does it all by itself. We don't do anything. In fact, you don't have to do anything except be here, do it, have the right intention. And the heart does it all by itself. You could come with an agenda. Sometimes people come with an agenda. I'll try to work out this, or I'm going to heal from this or this. And it's so clear to me that all of that is extra and 
irrelevant because what's in store for you is what presents itself. I don't know whether it's going to be five days of rain or a toothache or whatever it's going to be. But it comes and it's here and it's what gets healed and worked with and what's presented. All of the people who said, I knew that was here, but I, I knew that difficulty was there. And I'm able to be with it a little more, but I didn't know that was there also. That was behind it. That was a surprise. Now I really see that whole situation. And then a little bit later, maybe some days later, now I really see what was happening was this. And then some days later, I've been deluding myself. What's really happening is this and this. And all we have to do, I, I thought to myself, this is an amazing position to be in. So you don't have to do anything except hold space for people and say, you're doing fine. You're doing great. That was a, such a wonderful line from Guy earlier on. I don't remember if it was the first or the second retreat. You may have missed that wonderful instruction that Guy gave to somebody. Um, somebody came to an interview and uh, because I hadn't had time to read Guy's process notes on the back of the paper, but I knew that this person was also seeing Guy on the days that they weren't seeing me. I said, what did Guy say about you the last time? And she said, oh, he said I was the best yogi here. <laughs> so I thought that was a great instruction. Somebody said to me yesterday, uh, of course, Guy is always surprised by that. He didn't say that, actually. But it was a great line. And everybody, but because here's the real truth, and somebody came and told me this yesterday. She said, I have it figured out. I am the best yogi on my zafu. <laughs> that is definitely true for every single person. Everybody, by the way, is the best in any way, but definitely the best on your zafu. Because if we come here with our bodies and our lives, and that's what we have to do. In addition to everything that people learned about themselves, everybody here had moments where they really got strong hits of how things change. Lots of hits about how we're put together by our stories that there's actually no one who owns the stories. But we keep on telling ourselves stories, and they make up a constructed self that we keep on keep feeding with our stories. And lots of people came and told me about how having seen that, they feel quite free to stop telling that story. That our stories really keep us trapped in a certain view of ourselves. Mostly we tell ourselves discouraging stories. I think to myself, do you remember um, there's a song called Home on the Range where the deer and the antelope play Rome, 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 play, 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 where seldom is heard a discouraging word and the skies are not cloudy all day. When you think about that we tell ourselves discouraging words all the time, not very many people tell themselves wonderful stories. That's why it's such a great instruction. I am the best yogi on my zafu. It's encouraging. And you think, those stories are just habits. We could have 
new habits of stories. We could say, and many people did, many of the people that I worked with said, what will I do with the story? It keeps on running all the time. And you will remember, if you were one of those people, I said, that's a mindfulness practice. When the story starts to run, you can decide, this is a story that is not wholesome and not helpful to me. I do not have to tell it to myself again. Somebody came in these, on all these six weeks and said, yesterday I was walking along and I started to tell the whole story of my life to myself and suddenly I thought to myself, I know this, and stopped. We don't have to tell ourselves the same stories. We could learn another habit. So lots of people, I gave the instruction, here's the mindfulness practice. When you start to tell yourself a discouraging story, you say, wait a minute, this is not a helpful story. Right effort, the Buddha taught, was that effort necessary to recognize when a wholesome, the mind was filled with something wholesome and to keep it there. When the mind fills with something non-wholesome, to put it out of the mind. A discouraging story is not helpful. This story is not helpful to me. I don't need to tell it to myself. That is not repression or suppression. It is choice. It is freedom. That's one of the things that everybody got to practice. Saying to themselves, wait a minute, this is not so helpful, I'll do something else. Ajahn Amaro is marvelous on that. He says, you know, if you're here at Spirit Rock, and you mean to go to San Francisco, and you drive out to Francis Drake Boulevard, the most helpful thing to do when you come to Highway 101 would be to turn south. That would be a very good thing to do. If by accident you get on the northbound ramp, you're not obliged to go all the way to Eureka. You could just go to the next interchange, go over the highway, and go back to San Francisco. Neither do you need to tell yourself stories about how could I have made such a foolish era of turning north instead of south, and I always turn north instead of south, just whoops, and turn around and go the other way. It's much easier than we make it out to be. And when we see the kinds of patterns that we do, the fact that they're not us, they're just a story. There isn't any us that owns a story we really can start to tell new stories. I think when we begin to be aware of the pain that we cause ourselves, really out of compassion for ourselves, we can stop. Another very big piece, and perhaps this is the last piece of learning that people did that was so touching to me, is the fact that we're in community is tremendously important. Each of us could do this practice by themselves, and people often do isolated practice at hermits in the forest or somewhere. But the fact that we're here with other people, and people sit next to people who are crying, and then even if their experience at that point is not difficult. When we are clear and when we are present, when we're awake, when our hearts are open, and other people cry, we really are able, intuiting their pain, to really touch on the pain of everybody's lives sometimes. 
and what it means to be a human being. So you did a great favor to somebody if you sat next to them and cried. Sometimes people worry about that. They say, I have to stay in my room because I'm weeping. We all weep from time to time. And when we are in the presence of someone who is, and our own hearts are relaxed, especially if we feel good, we're really able to be open to the truth of the pain in other people's lives. I think it makes us kinder. Sometimes people say, I'm afraid if I stay here too long, I'll become really heartbroken. I'll intuit the pain of the whole world, and I'll be too vulnerable. And I like to say to people, I don't think there's such a thing as too vulnerable. For a while, some years back, there was a bumper sticker that said, you can't be too rich or too thin. And I think that's wrong. I think you can be both of those. But I don't think you can be too vulnerable. I think we're meant to be completely vulnerable, really turned inside out with vulnerability about how difficult it is to be a human being. I love it that when people ask the Dalai Lama, what, uh, what is Buddhism, can you tell me? What, what kind of a religion is that? And he says, uh, my religion is kindness. I think that's just really wonderful. There's so many mysterious and elegant things you could say about a whole elaborate tradition. Or you could say, my religion is kindness. Human beings have such an enormous range of behavior possibilities. I got two books in the mail today. Uh, one of them... Um, It's called Rescuers, and uh, it's a a book uh, of uh, photos that were a traveling show and now made into a book some years ago um, of um, people uh, who hid Jews during the Holocaust who were not Jews, who at risk to their own lives and families were willing to shelter people and take them in and keep them in their basement or their attic. And uh, it's been a good deal of uh, research, some of it recounted in this book, um, about what all those people had in common. And uh, one of the things that people discovered, that they were all kinds of people. They weren't necessarily... um, the ministers or the spiritual leaders in particular communities. They uh, had not prior to that time all of them necessarily reputations for being the most amazing person in their community. Nor did they think of themselves as heroes. And uh, when they were interviewed, one thread that goes through most of the interviews is that uh, they didn't think of themselves as heroes, and they weren't particularly interested in presenting themselves as heroic. Uh, And uh, the most unanimous answer they had was the answer to the question, why did you take those people in? And what they said, generally, was, I couldn't not. So you think to yourself, what capacity of people? How will we 
discover that peace. Human beings can do that at great risk to themselves. They can say, I couldn't not to risk that. The other book I got, which I just read a little bit of, uh, is Stories from Rwanda. The name of it is called, We Wish to Inform You That Tomorrow We Will Be Killed With Our Families. And there's a piece of a letter that someone wrote, a pastor in a community, out to our dear leader, pastor, and it's got a very long, complicated name to say, How are you? We wish you to be strong in all these problems we are facing. We wish to inform you that we have heard that tomorrow we will be killed with our families. We therefore request you to intervene on our behalf and talk with the mayor. We believe that with the help of God who entrusted you the leadership of this flock, which is going to be destroyed, your intervention will be highly appreciated. We give honor to you. Letter didn't work. Tremendous number of Rwandans were killed because they were incited to do that. That's so hard to imagine, really in hand-to-hand killing. Most terrible massacre. 800,000 people were killed in a hundred days. I think human beings have such a tremendous range and capacity of behavior. One of the possibilities is that we can be, all of us, turned in the direction of kindness. Think a lot about, is that going to happen on a big enough scale soon enough in a crowded world? to make a difference. I was driving um, back here tonight, driving over the hills, it's very beautiful, it was just sunset, and uh, listening to the news, and Jack told you last night that the news is not good, in Yugoslavia there's bombing, and a lot of destruction, and uh, I realized I didn't have the heart to listen to it anymore. So I pushed the button that turns off the radio and uh, it turned on the music on another channel and um, was playing the end of uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And uh, you hear the whole chorale singing along Alle Menschen werden Brüder. All people will be brothers. That's uh, Schiller's Ode to Joy. I think human beings have such a range of behavior. We can do terrible things and we can do amazing things. We can write music. We can aspire a really wonderful selfless behavior where we take care of each other as kin 
what amazing, wonderful karma that we all have to be able to be here and practice this quite wonderful direct way of transforming each of us, our own hearts, to the noblest and most kindest possibility. And we each of us go out from here really carrying that word of that possibility in our bodies and in our hearts in the way that we are. I love to uh, talk at the end of a retreat because then I get to talk about um, the Buddha's uh, instructions to monks and nuns that he sent out after they had practiced for a long time to teach all over India and uh, sent them out by saying something like, go forth and uh, teach this holy word in the idiom of the people. And I think to myself, I think what he meant was, uh, you don't need to speak in Pali. You could speak uh, Hindi or Gujarati or... Bengali, but the message is the same, that peace is possible, a kind and compassionate response is something that we're all capable of. We can be transformed, the world can be transformed, and that all of us as latter-day disciples, 2,500 years later, having been taught by people who learn from people, who learn from people, who learn from people, who learn from people, who learn and learn and learn and learn and learn, all the way back to some of those monks and nuns who went out, are still going forth and teaching in the idiom that we speak wherever we speak it, in whatever work we do with whoever we are with. So each of us, by our very being, however we are with people, our descendants, in that lineage of all those monks and nuns long ago. We become keepers of that message of peace. I think what keeps us doing it, even when we get discouraged, dismayed, is that we know in our hearts that the truth of that message is real, because we did it ourselves. It's been extraordinary to be here together with you. You did great. We all did great. May you thrive, all of you, everywhere. May we continue, all of us, to remind each other and teach it to everybody that we meet. Let's sit for a minute.
This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on March 26, 1999. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.